Good morning and welcome to Church of the Cross. My name is Peter. I am one of the priests here online. We want to welcome you who are participating there and you in the room, of course. Today is a significant one in the life of our community. Today we are celebrating our sixth birthday as a gospel-proclaiming embodying community. It's very exciting, yes. Around six years ago, a smaller group of people gathered in this very room and set out as a young church with a heart for Jesus and a desire to participate with him and his purposes in the world. Over these six years, we have much of God's faithfulness to celebrate And among those things that we would celebrate, those signs of his faithfulness, is the fact that tomorrow, this time, we will have closed on this property as our new home. So very significant, very exciting. It feels like a political rally here. We're uh, we're clapping every two minutes. Uh, At this moment, this significant moment in our life, it feels appropriate to take a moment to take stock and to consider where it is that we are going. And in light of the passages we just heard read, in light of this moment, I'd like to frame our next few moments around this question of where is Jesus taking us? As we think about the road ahead, as we consider the future, the various paths we might pursue. As a community of Jesus followers, our reflection on the future, our questions must be framed in this way. Not what do I want to do, what do we want to do, or what makes the most sense to us. But where is the Lord Jesus taking us? And I want to answer that in two ways. I want to suggest this morning, based on our readings, that Jesus is taking us into life. And second, he is taking us into the possession of love. Into life and into love. I wanted to work laughter in there some way. Like, you know, live, laugh, love, drink rosé or something like that. But our passages won't allow it this morning. So first, Jesus is taking us into life, further up and further in. In the verses just prior to our gospel reading this morning, earlier on in Luke 9, Jesus invites his followers to take up their cross and follow him. This, he suggests, is what it means to follow him, to take on a cruciform way of life. And in Jesus, then, through his resurrection, through his ascension, the way of the cross, this cruciform way of life, has become the way of life, as the quote on the front of your bulletin puts it. This is something that we have reiterated, we have talked about time and again over these past years as a church, that this countercultural, counterintuitive way of service and sacrifice, way of, of intimacy with God in company with others, This way of humility, this way of putting the needs of others before our own is the way to live, the way to the good, the true, the beautiful way of life, the way of a truly human and abundant life that Jesus promises. A very popular and famous quote in Christian history comes from a man called Irenaeus of Lyon. Irenaeus once wrote that the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Perhaps you've heard it. It's an invigorating quote. It almost feels like it could sell Red Bull or the X Games. Yet the larger context of that quote specifies something particular about what Irenaeus meant. He goes on to say that the glory of God gives life and that those who see God receive life. He's suggesting that to come fully alive, to be a fully alive human being, one must see 
God. One must receive the glory of God. It's kind of this strange thought. But in our reading this morning, Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, with him, and he ascends the mountain. The text doesn't say which mountain this is, but in Scripture, mountains are often this place of encounter with Yahweh, with God. Mount Sinai, in our reading from Exodus, is the quintessential example. And it's on this mountain that Jesus is transfigured. As he prays, he is changed, not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of these three who are with him, witnesses. His true identity, his true glory is made known to them. Up to this point, they would have regarded him as this remarkable person, this person of incredible capacity and character. But in this moment, they see something deeper and truer of who he is. In the radiance of his face, in the transformation of his clothes, but also through the presence of Moses and Elijah, and of course, this voice, they see him in glory. This is where the way of the cross leads. This is where Jesus seeks to take us. For centuries, Christian writers have, have described this ascent of Peter, James, and John in terms of Jesus' intention for his followers. Jesus' desire, his invitation, his intention is that you and I should see his glory and come more fully alive. That we would journey further up into life with him. That we might become more ourselves, more human in him. That is God's intention for you in Christ today. Whether you have yet to encounter him, perhaps you are far from him, or perhaps you've journeyed with him for some time. So the question for all of us, where is he taking us? Where does he long for us to go? For each of us is further up and further in, into life, into a richer apprehension of his glory. In the coming season of Lent, we as a community are making this specific kind of prioritization on prayer. And prayer, at its most basic thing, is keeping company with Jesus. It's not this laundry list of petitions, of requests. It's not this formula to get what we want. It is this communion, this way of contemplation, this way of going up with Christ. A striking element of the passage in Luke 9, though, is how confused, how disoriented the disciples are. They're in a stupor, and then they come awake. Peter begins speaking without knowing what it is that he says, and this fearful cloud descends on them. The cloud is this symbol of God's presence, but it's also this place of disorientation, confusion. I think these elements are illustrative of what it can mean for us to go where Jesus takes us. The journey into the glory, into the life of God may often for us feel to be a journey into confusion, into fearful circumstances. No doubt some of you have this experience where to follow Jesus has meant to move out from safety, where following Jesus meant journeying into the unknown, into the place where the step of faith stabbed you in the back, such that you're not sure it's worthwhile to follow him, that he's trustworthy. I don't have easy answers for you, and I have no guarantees about the future. 
I am struck again and again how in the Gospels, it is precisely because they are with Jesus that the disciples encounter trouble, earthly failure, and suffering. With him, they journey into the fearful cloud where things are obscured and the the way forward is so often hidden. Why must it be this way? It may simply be because to be with Jesus is to enter the fray, to enter into the clash of kingdoms, the, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of the earth. So to be with him means to move into the fog of war. But what our passage does seem to indicate and what the lives of saints so often reveal is that in the clouds, in the darkness, through the difficulties, there can be this deeper experience, this deeper apprehension of God's glory, a deeper aliveness for those who are with Christ. There is a grace that can come only through suffering. Not that suffering itself is a good, but that by God's Holy Spirit can result in us, in human persons, coming more alive, coming to more fully reflect God's mercy, grace, and compassion. There are people who through suffering with Christ are rendered more deeply compassionate, more profoundly marked by gratitude, more able to relinquish their impulse to grasp and thus rendered more human, more gloriously alive. For those on the journey with Jesus, suffering and difficulty themselves can be turned toward God's glorious purposes, toward our growth in life. Even death, even the failing of our bodies, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, does not overcome Jesus' intention that we would grow in glory. So we set out, we keep on in the way of the cross. And even more, our text suggests that in the fearful, in the obscuring cloud, in the darkness, where Jesus so often leads us, there the word of the Lord is present. The voice of God can still be heard. Don't be afraid, the disciples hear. And they hear there the confirmation of God the Father being with and for his Son. Think of the confidence this would have engendered. The one with whom they are taken, the one with whom they are going, is God's chosen, is the one whose words must be heard and received. It is his voice they hear that carries all the weight of the law and the prophets. He has authority. He has mastery, even in the cloud, even in difficulty, even in the darkness. Gregory of Nyssa, this ancient church father, wrote of this journey up the mountain. He described Moses going up the mountain and having this vision of God. And he says, Moses' vision of God began with light. And afterward, God spoke to him in a cloud. But when Moses rose higher, he saw God even in the darkness. Where is Jesus taking us? At this critical and significant moment for our community, in the the midst of so much insecurity in the world, so much brokenness and suffering, he is taking us into glory, into life with God. Yes, perhaps further into suffering, into challenge, 
But whatever clouds the future may hold, we have confidence that the one with whom we go is with us to the end, and that he is the one to whom all authority is given, and that his intention is that we would radiate the goodness of God's glory. His purpose, that you would be transformed to reflect his likeness, as Moses does, will surely happen. Whatever else the future might hold for us as a church or for you in your life, as you keep company with Jesus, as we as a community keep company with Jesus, this outcome, the glory of God, a human person fully alive, will happen among us and in you. He's taking us into life. The second place that Jesus is taking us is into the possession of love. Our New Testament reading this morning is written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, his first letter. And the church in Corinth was, to put it frankly, a dumpster fire. I remember preaching from 1 Corinthians early on in our life as a church, the first couple of weeks. And I remember commenting in that sermon, however difficult things might get, however far awry they might go among us, we can take comfort that it probably won't get as bad as it did in Corinth. That was almost our tagline as a church. Church of the cross, at least we're not Corinth. (laughs) You know, set expectations low and then exceed them. This was a community, a Christian community that was barely functioning because of its rivalry and arrogance. With this disordered vision of what it meant to be mature and strong, this kind of belief in kind of spiritual fireworks as the confirmation of one's maturity. And it was rife with immorality, like people are doing crazy things. In many ways, it was a community that was out of step with where Jesus intended to take it. And so our passage this morning involves Paul's correction to them, this challenge to them to go where Jesus longs to take them. And according to him, that means into the possession of love. This is the most excellent way he refers to. This is where Christ longs to take them, to take us, that we might have love. Whatever else the Lord has in store for us in the years to come, whatever good work he has called us to, first and foremost in him, we have an invitation to the way of love, into love, into the love that he as the son shares with the father, into the love that is the very presence of God, the Holy Spirit. In verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13, Paul describes this number of good things that might be done in the name of Jesus by a church, giving to the poor, sacrificing one's comfort and security, prophesying, speaking in tongues, growing in knowledge of God's mysteries. Good things. We hope those things happen here among us. But such actions, he says, good as they might be, are in vain if done apart from the giving up of ourselves to love, to the love of Jesus, to the love of God. That this kind of misaligned life is possible speaks to the reality that so many of us know and can name. That people who take the name of Christ often, all too often, do not exhibit the life and love of Christ. We are very good at finding religious ways, praiseworthy ways to avoid going where Jesus would take us. 
going with him. Our selfish, self-interested capacity to take good things, actions for others, and twist them to become about our own security, our own righteousness, is incredible. Not even mad, I'm impressed. Something like giving to the poor in our sin-stayed hearts and lives can easily become this way of self-promotion, self-aggrandizement, another means of proving ourselves over and against others. But this is not to say that love for Paul, that the way of love that he is challenging us to, the way of love that Jesus calls us to is this kind of amorphous or ill-defined thing, this vague, like touchy-feely thing. Verses four through seven in chapter chapter 13 outline for us in concrete terms what it is to have this love, to walk in this way. They show us what love looks like in practice. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not rejoice in evil. And even more than this list, we have a living example. New Testament scholar Gordon Fee has suggested that we might put Jesus' name in the place of love in these verses, such as his embodiment of love. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not fail. He shows us what love looks like. Interestingly, Fee also suggests that we might put our own name in the place of love in these same verses. And he writes, swiftly feel the weight of our own need for repentance and forgiveness. Peter is patient. Peter is kind. Always. Lord, have mercy. Church of the cross always protects, always trusts, always hopes. Church of the cross always perseveres. Yes, Lord, make it so. Your will be done among us this time in this place. The famous short story, The Rabbi's Gift, focuses on a monastic community that has fallen on hard times dwindled to only a few members. Seeking the way forward, the abbot and four remaining monks seek out the wisdom of a nearby wise man, a rabbi. And they inquire of him, what should we do? And he tells them, I'm afraid I have no advice to give. All I can tell you, though, is that the Messiah is one of you. They return discouraged and perplexed. But in the ensuing months, something remarkable happens. Wondering if one of the others might, yes, just be God's anointed one. The monks, the abbot, begin to treat each other with remarkable honor, remarkable dignity. They put the needs of one another ahead of their own. They regard each other as more important, of greater value. They build up and seek the good of each other. And their community is transformed marked by love and renewed. I like that story. It speaks of a community that is given over to love, given over to the edification of one another, to the seeking of their common good. Would we become, would we grow and increase as such a community among ourselves and as a community for the world around us? I believe this to be Jesus' desire for us, where he wants to take us. 
But I also fear that this story somehow misses the mark, is somehow incomplete. That we or any human community could become such a community of love is not merely a matter of wisdom. It is also a matter of power and grace. The story seems to almost suggest that having the right information, the right perspective is what is necessary for us to become a people of love. But if we are to be a community that has love, that possesses this quality, it is essential that we are first a people, a community that is possessed by love. To have love, we must first and in an ongoing way be had and changed by the love of God. In writing to the Corinthians, Paul could have written them and told them, stop with all this spiritual excess. Forget about these spiritual gifts that are producing such division, such pride among you. But he wrote no such thing. Rather, he argues that love is the true context of such gifts. Love is the true and fruitful grounding in which these gifts can be exercised. Love and the gifts can be connected in this way. Because the spirit that gives these gifts is the spirit of love. It can be no other way. For the spirit that gives the gifts is the spirit of Christ. It is the spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, and God is love. This, I would suggest to you, is where Jesus longs to take us as a community of his disciples, where he longs to take you as his cherished daughter and son, The only way we can have the love that Paul describes is by the power of God's Holy Spirit. We must be baptized for the first time and yet again in the spirit of Christ's love. We must call upon him that the love of God might be shed abroad in our hearts as we set out with him and in an ongoing way. Because this spirit is the love that does not fail, that is not defeated that never comes to an end, is never rendered void. And into this love, Jesus longs to take you. It's for this reason Christ has died for us. It's for this reason he has given himself. It's for this reason that he has sent us his spirit, that you and I might have this love for the first time and in this ongoing, life-transforming way. Where does Jesus long to take us? What is Jesus' intention for us as Church of the Cross? He longs to take us into life and into the possession of his love. May Church of the Cross be a place, a community where the glory of the Lord in Jesus is beheld. And may it be a place where the love of Christ is experienced, that we might know and reflect his glory, that we might have his love for a hurting and broken world. Today, in this significant season, in the future, whatever else may come, we say, lead us on, Lord Christ. Take us where you will. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.